You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon from the studios of Community Radio 91.3 FM, reporting live for WFHB. This is Aaron Wager-Miller. And I'm Carolyn Vanderweel. This is the WFHB Local News for Friday, February 28th, 2020. Coming up in the next half hour, WFHB member Cynthia Roberts-Hall interviews third secretaries at the Cuban Embassy in Washington, D.C. The main goal of our visit is to have the chance uh, to interact with people from Bloomington, people from the university, uh, from the community sector. Yannette Pumariega-Perez talking about her visit to Bloomington. That's coming up in today's featured report. But first, let's dive into your local headlines. The Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners approved new community farmers' market rules of behavior. During the February 25th meeting, Market Coordinator Marsha Veldman said the rules of behavior outlines market and protest areas, acceptable market activities, and recently passed administrative policy. One update made to the rules of behavior since those that were included in the January 9, 2020 Park Board packet is the addition of a reference to the applicability of the Department Administrative Policy 2050 regarding removal and suspension from property owned, managed, or operated by the City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department. Parks and Recreation Administrator Paula McDevitt said the policy allows relocation or arrest of people incompliant to market rules of behavior. Board member Kathleen Mills said seven designated protest areas surround the market. She said protesters in the market space cause an inconvenience. I also recognize, again, that the point of protest is is often to cause a disruption. The point of protest is to be right there, inches away from what it is that you're trying to affect. I totally get that. Um, But I think if we have a free-for-all of protest, that we probably don't have a market anymore. Um, And we have voted to continue a market, and that's... That's what we're charged with doing. If we're having a market, we're having a market. I'm, I'm not sure the public wants to run a gauntlet through various sides of protesters to buy cucumbers and bread. And, but I understand. But I understand that the point. I understand that the. I understand the frustrations, and I understand the point of protest. Local activist Lisa Marie Hacker said the rules of behavior do not protect marginalized people. One concerned citizen said the proposed policy uses ambiguous language to lie and avoid the truth. When you create a zone to take up more space in the market where you know protesters were last summer and you call it a free speech zone when it's designed to silence them, that's equivocation. When you wear purple in defiance of a protest because you want to normalize it and pretend like it doesn't mean what it means, that's equivocation. Um, when uh, When you call anything free speech that's meant to silence it, it's equivocation. And when you say that you believe in diversity, but your policies support white supremacy, that's equivocation. A Bloomington resident claimed the board was creating an all white market. He said the policy is racist and will guarantee police violence. 
if people um, uh, engage in uh, free speech, constitutionally protected free speech activity in the market, political speech, where they choose, not these free speech zones, you're threatening them with police violence. The police will come arrest them. If they, if they still want to exercise their free speech, the police will use violence. The only way violence will not happen in that situation is if the person who is exercising their free speech, you know, self-censors themselves and chooses to stop. This is uh, why I say that it's a threat of police violence. Board members passed the rules two to one with yes votes from Kathleen Mills and Les Coyne and one no from Israel Herrera. Yesterday, the Indiana State Health Department began a pandemic preparedness and response plan as the global outbreak of coronavirus continues. The State Health Department said it is closely monitoring the outbreak of the 2019 coronavirus, or COVID-19. The outbreak was first found in Wuhan, China. The Health Department said the risk of infection in the U.S. is low, And according to the Center for Disease Control, animals or animal products imported from China do not pose a risk for spreading the coronavirus to the U.S. Indiana's health department is working with federal and local partners to respond to the, quote, evolving public health situation, end quote. The Bloomington City Council Land Use Committee continued discussion about an Arlington Drive zoning ordinance and preliminary plat during their February 26th meeting. Project architect Dan Moriarty said the site plan involves four development areas. For those who may be seeing it for the first time, um, we have a series of building types. We have a four-story multifamily building, a a series of townhomes, some cottages, and then also some single-family homes uh, over here to to the north. They're in what we call Section A, which is here. Moriarty said additional townhomes were planned. However, the total number of beds did not change. Councilmember Stephen Volan asked Moriarty about housing front beautification. What can we do to make uh, both sides, both sets of asphalt here, look more like a street and less like a parking lot? Um, the, you know, if you've got this one building on the right that this, it's fronting on the parking lot and the other building... Uh, you know, his back is to the parking lot. Uh, that doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sound inspiring exactly. You know, yeah. like if the, if the back of this left-hand building also looked like the front, that would help. I mean, it, it seems pretty promising from here, but that's all I'm getting at. Yeah. Right. The, the one choice we have, Mr. Jeff, quickly is, or not choice, but one thing we haven't developed yet or had time is if you think about the first floor of that townhome, it's basically a living, dining, and kitchen area. Right. So it's an open plan across the back. And then the intent is to have outdoor area or patio. In fact, one of these would be a door that would come out. Um, Now, would it be um, a look like an entrance? Probably not. I mean, we would probably keep I think we want the streetscape to have the prominent facade as far as entry exit. Now, maybe not. I mean, there is an option where you could flip those. Volan said dispersed parallel parking would downsize the parking lot and create a better streetscape. Volan said parallel parking would also reduce traffic speed. Bloomington resident Sharon Roulet asked about city-dedicated housing plans. Will there be duplexes? Will there be triplexes? Uh, Once someone, are you going to sell them, sell the property, and then keep the money? What do you... 
are you going to uh, build all the homes simultaneously? Will they all be the same kind of things like a habitat community? Or will, like, somebody comes along and says, well, I'd like to build a log cabin on, on mine, or I'd like to buy a tr build a triplex on, on this lot. Um, are they going to have any uniformity, or uh, are they going to fit in with the rest of the complex? Senior zoning planner Eric Gerlich, Eric Grulich, said there are no current precise design plans. Director of Economic and Sustainable Development Alex Crowley said city housing would be owner-occupied, not rentals. Grulich said both sidewalk and vehicle paths will connect to adjacent street frontages. Councilmember Matt Flaherty proposed a reasonable condition about a city-run bus route partnership. In short, it is trying to memorialize what has been discussed already with a few um, minor changes. I think based on last week's discussion, the committee members were, were somewhat concerned about the, the short period of service on the weekends, so I wanted uh, Mr. May to um, price out a slightly longer period on, on Saturdays and Sundays, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, the previous pricing we had looked at was 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That increased um, annual cost from about 338000 to 358000 and that amount is reflected in item um, or bullet number two uh, of the proposed reasonable condition. So again, that service would be a, a, a new proposed Route 10, which would be a 40-minute frequency, 360 days of service per year. Hours of operation would be 7 to 10, Monday through Friday, and 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. Petitioner Jeff Cannibal was concerned about long-term contract commitment for the bus service partnership. Grulich said any reasonable condition could later be amended with requests to the Planning Commission and City Council. Council members also presented reasonable conditions for townhomes to follow street curvature and to increase electric vehicle charging stations. Council members recommended petition approval as amended to the full council. Historic Preservation Program Manor, Connor Heterich, proposed an adoptive reuse petition for the kiln building to the Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission. He spoke about reconstructions during the February 27th meeting. The kiln building is located in the Shower Brothers Furniture Factory Historic District. Um, the adaptive reuse of this building is part of a larger initiative that's been going on for decades to utilize Historic Shower's campus um, to contribute to the success of the city's proposed trades district. Um, the adaptive reuse of this kiln is to convert it to office slash commercial space. Uh, there's going to be a conversion of the original bay openings into glass framed entrances, uh, approximately two story rooftop addition. Uh, materials we're looking at aluminum clad pillow lifestyle windows, standing seam metal siding, flush panel metal siding, wood soffit material, and some reuse of original kiln brick. Hederich said the roof addition will not disturb any character defining features. Commission member Chris Sturbaum questioned the second story glass panel railing. I really think the glass rail calls too much attention to itself and that there's industrial rail all over. And if it just humbly had an industrial rail up there, it would still function beautifully. And it would just integrate a little better with not only the building, but the site. I think it wants to show off a little bit and I think it detracts by its attraction. Commission member Duncan Campbell said the building front looks like a shopping mall and does not complement the building's original intent. He suggested more industrial building adaptation designs.
the normal sort of protocol when you do an adaption of, a, of an industrial building is that you try to stay in some form in industrial motif and and take for instance the entrance to this building uh, on both sides the one on the cook side and the one on this side they're very modern interpretations um, but they they treat the building with the kinds of materials that are of an industrial origin. And so even though they are totally different and, and create entrances where there never were any, they, they read as industrial. And, and, and so, and that's a commitment that those architects made to, to this building that I think works pretty well. And, and, and I'm not seeing that here. Like, I think this is more of an attempt to completely make it over and what preservationists like to see is some aspect of the original intent of the building incorporated into the makeover. Campbell said the upper levels appear too much like apartment buildings. The petitioner said redesigns will be considered. Commissioners will continue the petition in their March 12th meeting. The Monroe County Community School Board discussed a composting partnership with J.B. Salvage and Green Earth Recycling during their February 25th meeting. Assistant Superintendent of Curriculum and Instruction, Dr. Mark A. Winston, said the Academy, Marlin Elementary, and Templeton Elementary Schools have adopted the program. And so what's happening basically in our cafeterias, we have identified um, ways to help our students to better understand how composting is going to be beneficial to our schools, to our country, to our community, and to our land. And so each of, this, of the three early adopter schools are going to have a compost bin that will be placed within our lunchrooms. They will also have a five-gallon bucket for liquid waste. Winston said waste will be picked up twice a week. She said approximately 170,000 pounds of food waste would be composted annually from high schools alone. Winston mentioned curriculum opportunities. Our science coordinator is working very closely on the development of lesson plans and curricular resources to provide to our teachers. Our teachers have already begun to look at project-based learning um, initiatives as well as STEM activities to make sure that our students continue to understand the overall benefit of composting. Winston said frequent composting updates will be presented to the board. Also during the meeting, board members approved a Monroe County Public Library six-acre purchase agreement of Bachelor Middle School property. Board member Keith Klein said the purchase will benefit both students and the community. I just want to say this, this is an incredible win-win for both the library and the MCCSC. This couldn't be a better arrangement to have a library on our property uh, to serve our kids as well as the rest of the community. It's amazing, and I, I thank whoever negotiated this because it, uh, it's the kind of thing we ought to be doing, it's the kind of thing they ought to be doing, and it's a marriage made in heaven. So thank you. <laughs> Anybody else? Sure. I, I want to agree. I agree with Keith, of course. You know, if we could have... Um, branches all over the county. It would it would be perfect. We have one in Ellettsville, and now this one um, on the Bachelor property is. Well, I'm a little biased. I could walk there. The next regular school board meeting will be on March 24th. Up next, WFHB correspondent Cynthia Roberts Hall interviewed Yannette Pumariega and Perez and Dariel Quintana, both third secretaries to the third uh, to the Cuban embassy in Washington D.C. This is part one of a four-part series. Our guests talk about improving relations between the United States and Cuba. 
Well, welcome to Bloomington and WFHB. I have with us in the WFHB studios, uh, Yannette Pumieriega, is that correct? And Dariel uh, Quintana, both uh, third secretaries at the Cuban Embassy in Washington, D.C. So welcome. And I'm going to uh, throw it over to you as to the purpose of your visit and what is on the agenda. Well, thank you so much. Uh, for us, uh, it's been a pleasure uh, being here in, in Indiana and in Bloomington. It's our first time here. The main goal of our visit is to have the chance uh, to interact with people from Bloomington, people from the university, uh, from the community sector, from the solidarity sector uh, with Cuba, to talk about uh, the potentialities that are still uh, there for more cooperation and uh, engagement with the Cuban counterparts. Uh, we have been received uh, with a warm welcoming, and so far uh, it's been uh, very well. We had the, the possibility to to talk uh, with Major of Bloomington and, you know, discuss about uh, potentialities in areas such as business, education, health, among others. There are a lot of potentialities, and we look forward to, to, to move forward on this. Thank you so much for having us. You're most welcome, and you'll be going... Um when you leave here to Indianapolis, where I understand you have meetings with the Department of Agriculture and Farm Bureau today, and we'll be be meeting uh, some of the senators uh, tomorrow. If you want to elaborate on that a little bit. Yes, part of our visit uh, to Indiana in general, uh, we are now heading to Indianapolis. There we are going to meet uh, officials from the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Commerce to explore possibilities of business between Cuba and, and Indiana and the possibilities of uh, Increase the trade in this uh, agricultural area uh, mo uh, in, in general, and also we are going to meet some uh, st state senators and uh, other legislator legislators there. There, also we are going to meet other people from Cuba Amistad in in, in Indianapolis, and uh, that is a organization we based here in in Bloomington that have a long-standing relation with Cuba, have been supporting the the better uh, the improvement of the bilateral relations for a long time. In, in Bloomington and in Indiana and Indiana in general. Also, we are going to meet other people's uh, lawyers and the Bar Association uh, on Indiana also to, to try to, to move forward on the bilateral relation and to find uh, cooperation areas on both, uh, on both sides. Very good. Um, yesterday, you gave a talk on uh, bilateral relations or just covered the history of the transitions, uh, focusing mostly on Obama and some openings and then the changes with Trump. Do you have a few words to say about that? Well, uh, it was, uh, uh, we feel, uh, and people share with us, with us uh, it was a very good small lecture an overview on the U.S.-Cuba relations. I mean, the the, the uh, reestablishment of the relations, all of the accomplishments during the Obama administration. But also uh, our main uh, purpose with this uh, lecture and the, the, the questions uh, we received was uh, in a way of what we could do uh, to move forward and what would, are the areas, the areas that are still there uh, to move forward was uh, a very good uh, received by the students and the, the professor of the uh, Bloomington. Also, while in uh, IU, we were talking also with uh, Professor Duras and the, with the Vice President for International Programs to explore the possibilities of expanding the current cooperation between the IU and Cuba. Already, uh, as some of you may know, that Bloomington have a sister city 
uh, with Santa Clara in Cuba, a city in Cuba. And already the, the IU has signed agreement, a memorandum of cooperation with the Univers uh, Universidad Central de Las Villas. It's called UCLD in Cuba, and they are promoting cooperation in, in the areas that they, ju they ju uh, just explored. And there will be, uh, in a couple of weeks, a delegation from IU going to Cuba to explore that possibility, that possibilities and to begin some uh, real work on cooperating with Cuba. And we were exploring the possibilities to uh, to increase that cooperation in areas like education, special education. So we were talking also about the possibilities to go there with the great school of music that you have here in, in Bloomington, uh, in IU, and other areas that are uh, is pretty strong. And Cuba is also uh, strong in some of them and is eager to have more experience in, in other areas. And that was Cynthia Roberts-Hall talking to third secretaries at the Cuban Embassy in Washington, D.C., who visited Bloomington earlier this week. Up next, junior correspondent Katrine Bruner provides part one of a two-part series on mental health care in prisons. Here is part one of A Jail Within a Jail, Mental Health Care in Prisons. The three largest providers of mental health care in America aren't in hospitals, they're in jails. According to a 2017 report from the U.S. Department of Justice, about 37% of people in prison have a history of mental health problems. More than 24% have been previously diagnosed with major depressive disorder, 17% with bipolar disorder, 13% with a personality disorder, and 12% with post-traumatic stress disorder. The sad thing is that the numbers are even higher for people in jail, where one-third have been previously diagnosed with major depressive disorder and almost one-quarter with bipolar disorder. Alyssa Roth is a mental health correspondent for Minnesota Public Radio and author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness, where she explores prisons all over the country and explains what she saw with the mental health patients there. In 2018, Roth spoke in an interview on National Public Radio for an episode about mental illness in prisons. In the interview, she explained many of the issues that she saw in the prisons, including recognition of mental health in prisoners, punishment, and law enforcement. According to Roth, once people who are mentally ill go behind bars, they can go long periods without any medication. In the jail systems, Roth said, quote, half the people in our jails have a mental illness, end quote. However, she remarks that the statistics in the criminal justice system are very poor and the definition of mental illness is not often clear. In relation to mental health issues that arise when people aren't given the correct amount of medicine or any medicine in some cases, this can lead to violence and intense punishment for the prisoners. Ross explains that the training for a correctional officer is a lot about maintaining control and escalating when prisoners do not comply with their orders. She goes on to explain how this is a whole different scenario for someone mentally ill. Roth also explains what the punishment is for prisoners who do not correctly obey orders or act out. In extreme cases, prisoners are sent to solitary confinement. Roth speaks on what this does to people with mental health issues. Roth also describes in other cases what happens when prisoners are caught in a suicide attempt or self-harm. 
In terms of therapy in jails and prisons, Roth argues that there is not enough consistency or privacy for prisoners to get the care that they need, especially for mentally ill prisoners. When thinking of the issues presented with mental illness in prisons, Roth emphasizes the importance of being aware of the conditions that prisoners endure and overall what goes on in these prisons and jails, not just to people with mental illness, but everyone. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Brunner. Coming to you live from the studios of WFHB Community Radio, I'm Erin Wager-Miller. And I'm Carolyn Vanderweel. Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits Distillery. Located on the Beeline, Cardinal Spirits has opened a new kitchen featuring local seasonal food made from scratch to complement their craft cocktails. Dinner is available Tuesday through Saturday at Cardinal Spirits, 922 South Morton Street. The WFHB Local News is also brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Cynthia Roberts-Hall and Katrine Bruner. Our engineers today are Sydney Foreman and Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is Aaron Wager-Miller. And I'm Carolyn Vanderweel. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. Send inquiries to news at wfhb.org. And stay tuned for KiteLine, a program amplifying the voices of those within Indiana's prison system. It's coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 